If you're out there, sing along with me. We've been looking for the world to change. If you feel the same, I'm calling every woman, I'm calling every man. Sing along with me. Sings the powerful voice of John Legend. We here at Solutions of Balance do feel the same way, John Legend, as does our guest today, Shadiqua Reynolds. We are also looking for the world to change. Hello, folks. You are tuned to Solutions to Violence on Forward Radio, WFMP, LP, 106.5 FM. We are glad you can join us. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of this Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guest and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you can contact us by sending us an email at solutions2violence18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. I'm Jamie McMillan here with Jim Johnson. We are your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our guest today is Sadiqua Reynolds. The former district judge, Sadiqua Reynolds, is the first woman to serve as president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Her work on jobs, justice, education, health, and housing has garnered the attention and coverage of CNN, Fox News, the New York Times, and other national media outlets. Reynolds was the first African-American woman to clerk for the Kentucky Supreme Court and also the first African-American to serve Kentucky as its inspector general. She has also run a private practice handling criminal defense matters and representing abused, neglected, and dependent children. In 2017, she was named Community Leader of the Year by the National Alliance on Mental Illness for her work to reduce the stigma around mental health. She is a proponent of restorative justice and has been a participant in the, quote, Face It campaign against child abuse. Reynolds has been recognized as a business-first, enterprising woman to watch and woman of influence. She has been honored with a Tower Award, a Torch of Wisdom Award, and named a Daughter of Greatness by the Ali Center. In 2016, she received the Fannie Lou Hammer Award for Justice and was recognized as Biz Woman's Business Journal Top 100 Women to Watch Nationally. The Mortgage Bankers Association recognized her for her housing advocacy and she was named the IABC slash PRSA Communicator of the Year. Reynolds was Louisville Magazine's 2017 Person of the Year the 2018 National Urban League Woman of the Year of Power, the 2018 National Urban League Woman of Power, and Audrey Grievous Community Enrichment Award recipient. The National Bar Association named her as a Gertrude E. Rush Award recipient for her justice advocacy. Shadiqua Reynolds, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Thank you for that long introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, Sadiqua, tell us about the Louisville Urban League. What is their focus and and purpose? Uh, The Louisville Urban League's focus is on jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. We are really trying hard to empower people who have not normally had a voice in anything in our community, in our economy. It's really about community and individual empowerment. And we are, we're a civil rights organization, so we were set up to serve people who have been um, impacted by redlining. 
the folks who um, the, the National Urban League was actually created during the you know the Great Migration. You had people moving from the South to the North and trying to get into different jobs. And so unfortunately, we haven't been able yet to work ourselves out of business. But our focus jobs, justice, education, health and housing and disempowerment, quite frankly. So there is a National Urban League? There is a National Urban League, yes. And, and the National Urban League has approximately 90 or so affiliates across the country. And there's also a Kentucky Urban League, right? There is a Louisville Urban League. There's also a Lexington Urban League. So, Sadiqa, how does the Louisville Urban League differ from the Kentucky Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression? Oh, well, I would say as it relates to justice and advocacy, we, we probably have a lot in common. But what the Urban League does that a lot of people don't understand, we probably average about 23,000 visits a year. We help people get jobs. We help people with their resumes. We connect them with jobs to the tune of maybe anywhere from, you know, like a $25 million economic impact on the, the MSA. So we, we're not only, we're a barrier remover as it relates to um, transportation maybe or childcare or whatever the things are that would sometimes keep people from being able to be employed, including just training. I mean, sometimes we provide training. Sometimes it's just a resume writing. Sometimes it really is helping to pay for the workbook boots so a man or a woman can work their first day and they have the supplies that they need. We run five different um, out-of-school time programs for elementary students. We run a program for high school students. We do so many different things that I don't, we're, we're the largest um, free tax preparation site in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So if you come to us, you need your taxes done, you know, this, this is a place where a lot of people in Louisville get their taxes done for free. We're very focused in on the earned income tax credit. We do that in partnership with the Louisville Asset Building Coalition. We run an, an expungement clinic, so we actually help people get their records expunged. We pay for the attorneys. We pay, well, we, most of the time, we organize the attorneys and they're volunteers, but we pay all of the court costs, you know, associated with that. During COVID-19, we've been able to pay rent for people so they can actually stay in their homes. So I think there are organizations that do very similar work, again, as it relates to advocacy and, and policy but they don't necessarily have the programming piece to it. They don't have to do all of that. So we're sort of out there protesting and then coming into the office and trying to figure out actually how to pay your rent. So in, a, I think, a three-week period, we probably paid $50,000 in rent for folks here in Louisville. So when I say jobs, justice, education, health, and housing, we are all in. We're the oldest HUD certified counseling agency in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So when the government has money for down payment assistance, if you come to the Louisville Urban League and you get housing counseling, you take the certificate over to the government, to Louisville Metro, and if they have the funding, then you can get resources with um, for, for your down payment assistance for your house. We, we have a separate 501c3 that actually builds houses, rehabs houses very focused in on affordable housing. I don't think any of us are doing enough in this city or probably around the country around affordable housing. I think we really need to be more intentional about that. But I mean, we do a lot of things. We're also building a huge, like $50 million sports and learning complex in the West End because we had 24 acres of contaminated land. The community said they wanted a thing, so we're building it. And um, I, I mean, I, we, we ran a chess program. I'm just trying to think. I don't even know everything. We, we do a lot. Jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. 
we, we actually sued the Secretary of State to ensure that we were going to have the appropriate number of voting spaces and to ensure that we would be able to have mail-in ballots given the pandemic and the way our community is hit um, because of it. We constantly partner with corporations and other nonprofits and other organizations to get work done in this community. We just recently, even through the protest, partnered with Until Freedom to give out, you know, more than 400 food boxes. We also partnered with the Rajon Rondo Foundation to feed, you know, hundreds of senior citizens. I mean, delivered hot cooked meals to their door seven days. So we we, we provided COVID testing. I, I mean, I don't know. There we do a lot in the community, probably more than we, my staff would say, they're stretched. So, Sadiqa, how does how does the Louisville Urban League funded? Oh, we are funded in different ways. So um, it's a pretty diverse funding stream. There's no one funding stream that could come in and just shut us down, which I'm sure there are people who wish they could, because uh, that, that's very dangerous. That's when you end up being controlled. And so some of it is government. If you look uh, across the board, some of the housing dollars are going to come from government, but they may also be philanthropic dollars. I've raised a significant amount of money um, in this community. So a lot of philanthropy, a lot of individual philanthropy, corporate um, donations. We've also got some government. Federal government, not so much, might be a pass-through. Very, very little government, local government for us. I mean, very, very small. And then a little bit of Metro United Way, that seems to shrink every single year. So it's, it's, it's a lot of um, individual donors and um, corporate. We have fundraisers like other organizations. Of course, we haven't been able to do our gala this year. We missed our big, our largest fundraisers, our Derby Gala. We didn't get to have that. So, you know, foundations. I mean, we, I, we write grants. We just, we do what other nonprofit organizations do, what we have to do in order to do the work that we do. Sounds like you could use uh, some volunteers. We can use volunteers, but I'll tell you that the hard part about being a nonprofit with volunteers is that you normally don't have the funding to support the volunteer coordinator. And sometimes, and I think this is important, not just for the league, I think it's important for people who love nonprofits and want to reach out to say, how can we help? We want to volunteer. When people don't have a volunteer coordinator, it is hard because what happens, you have these volunteers show up and then it's somebody else's job to help get the volunteers organized, to tell them what to do, to get them to do, you know, here we want you to file, to teach them to do all of that stuff. And so that becomes frustrating sometimes to the volunteer because they're trying to do good work and they feel like, hey, you're not paying enough attention to me. And really what it is is that most of these organizations just don't have the staffing capacity for that kind of role. Now, it's, it's unfortunate and, and we all need to do better, myself included because that is a position that would pay for itself over and over again. And that's something we've got to think about, particularly now, because I see with voting, we are better about it, I'll tell you, during an election. We are much better, and we partner with so many other, other organizations that when they don't use, the, when we don't use the volunteer, we direct them to them. So we may decide, for example, the Alberta Jones Foundation, they are coordinating some of the phone calls, let's say, for the um, election or the rides or something. Used to be A. Philip Randolph would organize the rides. And so we would simply, anybody who called the Urban League and said, I'd like to give people rides to the polls. Okay, no problem. 
and we'd send them over to A. Philip Randolph. So they felt like they were helping the league, and they really were, because to the extent that you're helping people exercise their right to vote, you are helping the league. And so we share in that way. But a regular volunteer group, we don't do as great at that as we really should. So it, it sounds like a, a pretty intense job. You can't, for instance, uh, borrow a volunteer coordinator from another organization. No. So you mentioned uh, helping with taxes. Uh, you also provide individualized budget and credit counseling and uh, sessions for people where uh, the participants have the opportunity to, to participate in group sessions that cover topics like helping to pay rent. You mentioned that. Uh, free emergency money, you mentioned that, I think, and security deposit assistance programs. What is that? Oh, it's, you know, you have people all the time who are trying to move. They get evicted or something else happens. They may need help with that deposit. We do housing counseling. We do rental readiness counseling. Um, all of those things that help people, help people with their budgets. There are folks who um, we help get jobs and, and they're making steady income for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time and they want to make sure they're budgeting right because ultimately they'd like to buy a house or they'd like to have whatever. That's the kind of work that we do. We do that in group classes. There's some individual work. But, I mean, really it's a very holistic organization. Very holistic. Sounds like uh, you've got a lot on your hands. What about tenant counseling? What, what does that involve? Yeah, I mean, well, just rental readiness. I mean, just making sure that somebody's ready, they're budgeting. You never want anybody to be in over their heads, of course. Who could have predicted a pandemic and life being what it is? But just generally, you know, you want to be able to plan for the disasters you can plan for, figure out how much you can tolerate in a month, what you, what kind of rent you can afford. How can you be a good tenant? You know, when should your rent be paid? Do you want to have a cookout on the front lawn? Will the neighbors appreciate that or should you do it somewhere else? You know, those kinds of things. So we just meet people where they are and try to help them be the best version of themselves. So, Sadiq, we noticed, and you can't help from notice, really, there are finance companies that line major arteries all over Louisville, a way to get cash quickly. Should folks struggling with financial problems come to the Louisville Urban League instead of the financial institutions? Why? Oh, God, yes. People who are struggling should not be going to, like, a payday lender, should not. If they can avoid getting themselves into further debt, you know, these fast cash type places, you know, come to the Louisville Urban League or even some of the other nonprofits in our community. Please go to someone who is not going to make money off of helping you pay your debt down or prioritize your debt or helping to repair your credit. We can do that. It may be a little while. There may be a waiting list for the classes, but it's worth it. And that is good work that you deserve. I think people walk around in such fear they're so intimidated about their credit report. They're overwhelmed. They're embarrassed. And they shouldn't be. You know, I tell folks all the time, it, it is really the grace of God that separates some of us from the, the others of us. And I, and I hope people would not walk around with that emotional baggage and feeling like they're too embarrassed to tell somebody what's going on. Because really, 90 times out of 100, we can really help. Uh, redlining is a, a strategy created in the early 1950s. It was designed to prevent African Americans from, particularly African Americans, from purchasing homes in suburban white neighborhoods. That's white neighborhoods. Uh, how does that work, and, and does it still exist? Well, I, I think I think there's so many types of um, different types of redlining now. If you think about insurance, for example, 
car insurance costing more in, in urban areas than it does in some other areas. Other, you know, things that people need costing more, garbage collection, whatever, costing more in one part of the city than another, higher tax. I think there's still obviously are forms of redlining. And I, and I really do think that our country and our city, because we have actually done a redlining report, because you have African-Americans that have been left out of any opportunity for wealth building, any opportunity to acquire wealth, hold on to it and pass it down. I think we really are owed something. And I think to the extent that we want to figure out how to right some of the wrongs in communities. So, you know, you hear people talk a lot about crime and we always seem very willing to pay for police, but what we're not willing to do is to pay for root cause change. And part of why you have so many issues in some of these urban areas is really related to the injustice in these policies and the systems that have been created. And so you have communities that just haven't been invested in and the people who live there that don't have the resources to invest themselves. And it's just a real cycle. And so part of what we want to see happen in Louisville is that we would create additional housing units for purchase that would have a pathway to black ownership, which would really be in direct response to redlining reports. So instead of just rehabilitating the community and rehabbing the houses and, and rebuilding, you would do that with, with the intention of pushing black home ownership in response to very, very bad and now illegal um, government policy. So that's one thing that we could do. And then we also have to increase the number of rental units for very low income people. Most urban areas in this country have a very long waiting list for you know federal housing. And we can't continue to pretend like that's gonna go away. It's not going to go away. So we've got to create more units so that we are not pushing people who are working into homelessness. And I think right now, especially with COVID-19, we're seeing that to evict a person with a child from their home, you're not only evicting them and, and causing homelessness maybe, but you're also evicting that child from their school because here in Louisville, Kentucky, we're still doing virtual school. And so if you think about the turmoil as we try to close the achievement gap, so many of these things are tied and it's really, it's tied to poverty. And, you know, we say education is the key, it's the way out, well, but we don't act like it. Yeah. So you asked me a question about redlining and I worked my way to education because for me, I want people to understand how it's all connected. At the core of that is racism, but racism in policies then, you know, impacts, it, it just impacts everything. And so I think we have to be honest about that and that will allow us some opportunity to really address those things that need to be addressed. Well, that's really helpful. I don't think most of us think in those terms. So, you know, that, that really helps. Thank you. Thank you. So, Sadiq, will you, mentioned wealth and home ownership those two ideas are related so wealth is money passed down from one generation to the next wealth is also accumulated via home ownership home ownership is difficult for african americans why why is it not accumulating wealth such a disadvantage well i think that it has to do with our neighborhoods that haven't had 
so many neighborhoods have not had any increase in property values and so what happens is you buy property in a depressed community the property never the value doesn't go up and in fact there are many people in the west end of louisville who, who will tell you that their houses have lost value over 10 years or whatever so that's one part of it the second part of it is you have people who buy with this sort of speculation assuming that the neighborhood is going to change and we see this again happening in West Louisville. The neighborhood is going to change. And as it changes, then you have property values going up. And so in that case, you may have people who can't afford the new property values. They can't afford the taxes. And so you have that issue too. I think with, with redlining, when you think about locking people into a particular part of the city and not being able to give them free reign to, to, to get let go of the property, sell it, or to continue to hold on to it, then what ends up happening if you just they're, they're left out of opportunities for wealth building i mean most white families in this country hold most of their wealth their most valuable thing is their house and so um, if you're talking about black families that haven't been able to get loans or you know it's just it's clear and and we're still being discriminated against in the loan area you know it's still and and the challenge like think about this so business loans, of course, very difficult for um, black business owners to qualify for. And, you know, can you put your finger on the wide? No, but it just happens. And then the other part of it is if I want to build a house, the exact same house in two different zip codes, I, the wealthiest zip code in Kentucky, I think is 4059. And then let's say one of the poorest might be 40203. Okay, well... And that may not even be the right zip. Let's just imagine, though. Same house, two different zip codes, same amount of land, house the same size. It costs the same amount of money to build that house. Well, one of those houses is going to be valued much differently when it's over. So you have the situation with the bank not being willing to loan all of the money for the house being built in the poorer area. Um, and really, when it's when that house is built you might be in the hole already. You built the same exact house in two different zip codes, but the land value is so different. So you might not be able to get the loan that you need. I mean, there are all these things that keep this cycle going in our communities that don't allow people really to ever dig themselves out of the hole. And that's not to say that some people don't, some of us certainly do, but that is still an indictment on the system, right? I, just because one or two rise, I mean, that's always going to happen but we still have to make sure that the policies are changed so that we really get to what the root cause issues are. And I don't think we do such a great job at that. Okay. I don't think most people see that as violence, but it is a kind of violence against uh, you know, minorities. And uh, so you mentioned a couple of things. Are there other solutions that you can come up with that, that deal wanna, with that? Yeah, and I want to say something about what you just said. I appreciate that because it is violence. And I, I tell you a story that I've been thinking about lately during this pandemic. I think the city must have decided that they were going, you know how you want everybody's trying to make sure people keep their jobs. And so you you found yourself at, at the top of the pandemic. You had um, people kind of doing some work that they hadn't been able to do because you were trying to be creative to make sure everybody got to work. So I guess the city decided to clean the streets or something. I don't really know exactly what happened, but what I do know is I was standing out in front of the Louisville Urban League and a man ran up and said, Miss Reynolds, you gotta help me. They towed my car. 
And, you know, $140 tow fee for some people, not a big deal. It's a huge inconvenience to wake up and your car is gone, but it's not the end of the world. You just deal with it. But when you, when it's all you have and you've got to get to work and now you get up and your car is gone, I mean, to watch a man, a grown man, almost cry, you, the level of stress and violence that was perpetrated against him that day, I don't think people understand. I don't think they understand how hard it is to be poor, to, to just have enough to get by, to just barely be making it. I think those of us who have a few dollars saved might just take it for granted and we don't understand how much people are hurting and how one more thing is just too much. And we do things and we allow things to happen, uh, you know, and just say, oh, well, it'll be fine because maybe if it were us, it would be fine. But it's too much. And I'm just and I'm and I was standing there thinking, who decided that they were going to tow cars right now? Well, did somebody say we need revenue? So we're going to tow. Well, surely you wouldn't tow from a poor community because that could be you could tow those cars and maybe end up keeping them. But it's just another example, and I see that with parking tickets. I see that with police. If you think about over-policing and constantly in the West End, people are getting pulled over for that wide left turn or that wide turn. Well, what happens then? You get a ticket, you can't pay, your license gets suspended, it, and it's just the fines. It's the fines. It's the, it's the nickel and diming the life out of somebody. That's what we've got to do better at. So I appreciate you saying that that is violence because that's exactly what it is. And it feels violent and it feels like choking someone slowly. You know what I mean? That's what it, and, and to, yep. and I tell my team all the time, we are really frontline trauma responders because people are coming to us because they can't pay their rent. We just had a landlord in Louisville who decided he didn't want to take any money from the government. So the only way we could pay the rent was to pay using money that we raised from outside donors because he didn't want to go, he didn't want any of his clients, any of their tenants going to the government to get help. So we have a pregnant woman who could have been evicted and we and I'm being held hostage because of course I don't want to do that, but I don't want to fight over it and end up, you know, when she has nowhere to go. So we have to find the money to help her pay. And again, people with privilege take a whole lot for granted and, and, and allow a really, I mean, some really bad things to happen to people who don't have any ability to fight it because they're desperate. Okay, um, that's good to know. We'll probably ask you this again, but what's a way that people can help volunteering, but with donations? Oh, well, definitely we appreciate any gifts. So people could go to the Urban League's website, lul.org, lul, louisvilleurbanleague.org, and donate. Um, you can, and that would be wonderful. We'll use it for jobs, justice, education, health, or housing. Right now, there's a lot of, you know, that kind, everybody's in need. Um, you know, there are some volunteer opportunities, obviously. Um, in some cases, we have partnerships with folks that will help people with business plans or different things like that. But the, honestly, the best way to help is to give. 
I think that's so important. And even better than giving, let me say that's not really true. Everybody, support is fine for the organization. But I have to tell you, using your voice in the space you are in to change the way business is done for the people who really do need change, that is amazingly helpful. You would be surprised at how just little old you could make such a big difference in your workplace. If you have the power to hire and fire, bringing people in a more diverse candidate group, wonderful. You know, think about hiring at higher levels. When I first started in this role, everybody in town wanted to send me all the jobs they had for janitors. And I'm like, do you all have any, you know, black people can do other work, a lot of other, I'm, I'm, remember I have this law degree, I'm a CEO, so I'm, I'm not some unicorn. There are others out here like me. Can we get some, can we get a different job listing, please? We, we like janitors, don't get me wrong. We'll take those jobs. There's nothing wrong with it. They are honest, it's honest, good work but you got to give me something else too. So I think that you raising your voice, speaking out, voting in a way that makes sense for communities that need policy change. And then obviously the financial donations are ways people can help. The league has some instrumental in organizing demonstrations on behalf of justice and for Breonna Taylor. This is a political stand, or at least people see it as a political stand, why has the league decided to participate in political government? Oh no, no, no! I don't. I, well, first of all, I don't, I don't know what thinking black person would not want to participate in government. Um, the league is a nonpartisan organization, but we must be. You can't say you're working on policy and not talk about government. I mean, what we are saying is our lives matter. I mean, we are a civil rights organization. People should never forget that. Whatever else they think about what we should be doing, one of the number one things is to fight for civil rights. And so we participate in whatever way that it makes sense. And so in this city for right now, it made sense for us to be involved in demonstrations and protests in order to highlight the injustice that is happening in our community and throughout our country. And I think we've done a very good job at that. There's People all over this country are talking about Louisville. Um, I think, it, obviously, you all know this. In large part, most of those protests, uh, and certainly all of the protests that we participated in, were peaceful protests, but they were also disruptive. They disrupted people's way of life. They were inconvenient. People had, you know, traffic, whatever it was. And the point is to highlight the injustice so that the world can change. And that's that's really what we want. I mean, we don't want a gazillion dollars to do policy for the rest of our lives until I'm dead or whoever comes after me. Instead, what we want is for the policy to change so we don't have to have all of these Band-Aid programs. And so the protest was right and, and continues to be. We still don't see justice. We haven't seen enough change. And so I don't think anybody should plan on going back to life as usual um, at all. You know, we, we, what we want is a different life, a different way, a better way. For all of us. So, Shadiqa, you advocate for justice for Breonna Taylor and reforming the Louisville Metro Police Department. What should that justice look like and how do we restructure LMPD? Well, I think in the case of Breonna Taylor, we need a grand jury to listen to the facts and decide whether or not to indict any of the officers. We also need, um, internally, the police department needs to look at every policy and procedure that was violated that night leading up to it and even after it 
and there have to be repercussions. There needs to be significant discipline for people who violated policy. We haven't seen that. I don't understand it. The community needs to know the whole story about what happened, how it happened, why it happened. I think Kenny Walker's owed an apology. I think he should be getting counseling. Um, I listened to another interview he did today. I, I, I don't, I'm amazed at how little our city has done to help him, particularly a city government that, that um, talks so much about young black boys and black men. I mean, this man, whatever else he is or he is not, he was in love with a woman and he watched her be killed. And then he was carted off to jail for a crime that he did not commit. And so I don't know how we don't deal with that as a city. I'm, I'm really disappointed. So um, that that's justice in a way. That's what justice would look like for that case. Um, and so that's indictment, prosecution, whatever, you know, the law calls for. But we certainly need um, some independent body to investigate the case. And so I guess the FBI is looking at it. We'll see where they land. Um, as it relates to police reform, we need to stop having police officers respond to people that we know are in fact suffering from mental illnesses. And um, I think it's dangerous to have police coming and responding. You shouldn't probably call police unless you actually need a gun. I mean, they, these people have guns, they kill people, and that's what they're trained to do. They're not trained to shoot you in the leg or shoot you in the arm, they're trained to shoot to kill. So let's not call them unless maybe we think somebody needs to be shot, like, you know, murder in progress or kidnapping or whatever. Perhaps we might use some other first responders to really deal with some of the issues that communities facing. And I think especially in the black community, um, I compare it to soldiers, you know, soldiers go off to war, they come home and many people understand they have PTSD. Most people um, don't understand that living in urban areas where crime is high, investment is low, it's, 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 it's a war zone in many cases. And so that's ongoing traumatic stress disorder. That's what I call it. I don't know if that's a real official term, but it's my term. Um, and well, as, as far as I know, it's my term. Only God knows maybe it's a real term. But, um, you know, if, this is, if it's untreated, if, it, if it's undiagnosed and untreated, young people, any people can wreak havoc on their selves and their communities. And that's what we see happening. So we go, oh my gosh, why do we have the crime? Or why is this thing happening? Or why is that? Well, you got to look at what we haven't done for so many years. And so then you send police in to respond to the trauma in the communities they're not the right responders. They're coming with guns. We need somebody to respond to the pain, the neglect, all of the, the, the voids, all of the things that have led to the final acts of actual violence. And that's those things are so much harder to invest in because you can see police on TV and that law and order conversation just sounds so good and you feel like you're gonna keep people safe. But um, that's just not really the case. So God bless you. So Shadiqwa, by now everyone knows that on March 13, 2020, the LMPD used the authority of a no-knock warrant to invade the residence of Breonna Taylor. That invasion ended the life of Breonna Taylor. The police claim that no-knock warrants and home invasions are justified because they claim that drug dealers destroy the drug evidence if police announce their presence. But no-knock warrants are part of the, quote, war on drugs, end quote, that began under the Reagan administration in 1982. That idea was to track down drug traffickers, break up drug cartels, and criminalize illicit drug 
possessions. But since 1980, drug abuse and chemical dependency has grown exponentially. By 2002, a million people were dying from opioid overdose. By 2014, that number had increased to 1,500,000. By 2013, over 270 million prescriptions for opioid painkillers were being written each year. A dramatic increase, 76 million prescriptions in 1991. According to National Institute on Drug Abuse Documentation, by 2016, some 17.6 million people were suffering from alcoholism. Approximately 7.4 million people, people over the age of 12, struggle with illegal drug addictions, while a staggering 115 people a day die in the U.S. from opioid overdose. So the research comes from Designation Hope blog, The Evolution of Addiction and Treatment Through the Ages, September 16, 2016. So clearly, the war on drugs is a dismal failure, criminalizing drug addiction and imprisoning folks addicted to drugs is not working. So do you have a better plan, Sidiqua? Well, I think what we first have to do is acknowledge that the war on drugs was really meant to be a war on black people. Because as you begin to look at addiction now and you see the face of addiction, changing when you had people overdosing and we all of a sudden started talking about Narcan and needle exchange, a needle exchange first and then Narcan um, being used to revive people who had overdosed. The faces of those um, folks who were overdosing were not, they, their skin didn't look like mine. And so this country didn't care how much it spent. All of a sudden um, the cost of a life was was it didn't matter and we didn't track it we don't really know how much police departments are spending on narcan we don't even talk about or realize recognize the fact that some police departments are going to the same address twice a day to revive the same person after they've overdosed so we have to be honest about what the war on drugs really was that's one yes i do have a better plan i think and i think that plan would be to focus on housing for those who are using and homeless and wraparound services with treatment connected to that. Um, people have to, we've got to just, we're going to have to pay for treatment. We can't have these folks in the street. They're danger to themselves and others. Um, and it's, it's not fair. It's the wealthiest country in the world. If we have the ability to fix it, we should fix it. And I think we can. We've got to have treatment with wraparound services. And then we've got to connect it with supportive housing. It just has to happen. And eventually people will not need all of those supports. They will get their lives back. We know people can recover and they should be able to. Unfortunately, um, you know, our country, and, and I'm sure it's a global issue, uh, we've been hit very, very hard. The pharmaceutical companies don't seem to uh, be in a position to pay. And, and I don't mean they don't have the financial means. I think they're just not. So, okay, somebody's got to pay for it. And, and we know the answers, believe me. People who do this work know what it's going to take to help people recover and stay in recovery. The challenge is the answers are very expensive. And it, and it was easier just to lock people away. And, you know, going back to the racial part of this, right, when we talked about crack cocaine and how our communities were ripped apart by that addiction, 
the government didn't mind throwing everybody in jail. We said, listen, this is a public health problem. This is not just a this is not just criminal behavior. This is a public health problem. Yeah. And our government didn't want to respond in that way. And so maybe they learned on us or maybe they just care more about the the, the people who are now victims of this new drug epidemic. Whatever the reason, as a country, I think if life matters at all, we need to take care of one another. And so I'd love to see um, treatment for people, regardless of their station in life, regardless of what their race is, real treatment and wraparound services with supportive housing. I think that's really the answer to that. And it's hard, it's expensive, but it's not more money than we have. And in fact, if you think about it, at the top of the pandemic, the president made sure we all had our stimulus checks. And in fact, some companies, I think Harvard University and uh, was it Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, they didn't even need all the money. They sent the money back. So apparently this country has a bunch of money just sitting around. And whenever we need it, we write checks to who we want to write checks for what we want to write checks for. So I would suggest that we invest really in significant treatment because it's only going to get worse if we don't do something. So, Sadiqa, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But I'm looking at this situation. We, This country spends more money on health care than any other country on the planet. But we, okay. don't have a, we don't have a universal health care system. So it seems to me a universal health care system that would also provide health care for people who are suffering with mental issues. Would solve, oh, yeah, would solve the, the addiction problem here. It, well, it wouldn't solve it, but the thing about it is if you give somebody treatment and then they're still homeless, hell, being homeless is depressing. That'll make yeah. you drink and use again. I mean, sure. you cannot treat somebody and then send them back to live under a bridge. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to tie that. So it's not just health. It's all of it. It's really, it's, I mean, and I don't, I mean, it's not just hospital kind of health. You know, you really have to have all of the supportive services and the in the housing tied with it you have to have that i mean people are it is it is devastating not to know where you're going to live and to grow up as a child in louisville we've got six thousand homeless kids here living you know where they live in pillar to post in a shelter only god knows what they're doing and where they are how do you learn under those conditions and what do you learn you all you do learn something but what is it sure Let's go back for a second. You, you know, we've mentioned that several times. Where does, how did you get that housing? There's, there's, like you said, there's six thousand kids. How do you get that housing for those kids? I mean, you guys can't fund that. I mean, you're building houses, but we can't fund that. You have to have the government's got to be intentional about it. You, the government's got their hands on probably I don't know how many um, vacant and abandoned properties. Why wouldn't we turn those over? Help people with support in order you know for a year or something let help them get on their feet connect feet i'm sorry <laughs> help them get on their feet and um connect them to supportive housing we've got an organization here in louisville um it's called wellspring they do wonderful work for people who are severely mentally ill and want to live independently and they it's expensive work but it's good work it can be done and a lot of people who are using drugs and alcohol there's some mental illness tied underneath there so it can be done these programs have to be scaled and I think nonprofits leaders have to be unselfish enough to highlight other great nonprofit organizations. I hope I do a good job at that. I don't, you know, we don't have all the answers at the Urban League. Come to the Urban League, you can't come for everything. We'll refer you to somebody else who has mastered, you know, their part of this work. But I think our government and philanthropy has to be really intentional about root cause solutions. 
And what we've seen mostly is funding of Band-Aid solutions. And that's what we've really got to get out of. The other, other work does cost more, but it pays much more too. Shadiq, well, you mentioned uh, the fact that a lot of the property that, that uh, poor people are living on is, is, uh, is uh, contaminated. And, um, and it was done before, of course, they moved in, but there are factories because of the, the uh, property is less costly. They move in and pollute more. Is this part of the institutionalized racism that you would like to I see? I mean, all, everything happening in black, everything happening in black communities is a part of, of, of systemic or institutionalized racism. There's nothing done in these communities that is not intentional. Some, I mean, it is absolutely intentional. And even the lack of fixing the problems is intentional because somebody makes a financial decision that is not worth the fix. The land that we're building the sports and learning complex on was contaminated. It was sitting there as a brownfield for 10 years, open and notorious. If white people lived across the street from that thing, there's no way it would have been available to us to even build on. I mean, there is just a level of neglect that African-American communities have to face. And it is unfortunate, but it is the way of the world. It is the reason you have people in the streets yelling that black lives matter. It's not just about police reform. It's about reforming all of these systems, all of these systems that make us sick. It's the reason that COVID-19 is, is hitting our community harder. You know, is 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 we say, you know, when white folks have colds, black folks have the flu. I mean, that's just the way it has been, and we want it to stop. We want it change, and that doesn't mean, and this is important, that doesn't mean that black people want white people to have the flu. We don't. We actually just want to have a cold with you, or we want everybody to feel better. That's really what it's about, and I think people get so confused, and they think that, you know, we want to take something from somebody else. No, there's a way to live in this world where there's enough for all of us. Anybody who wants to work hard, try hard, that you can actually attain the American dream. But you have to have the rules be the same. And you know, just looking at Louisville again with the Daniel Cameron and the grand jury situation that you all brought up earlier. It took less than three minutes to indict Kenny Walker, who was the boyfriend in the house with Breonna Taylor. Yeah. But we have a whole six month, two day investigation you know, well, two-day um, presentation to the grand jury, six-month investigation about the officers. Why? There's no two separate grand jury systems in America. There's one. Why did the grand jury for police officers need more information than Kenny Walker's jury, grand jury needed? I don't understand that. That's, that shouldn't be how it works. So this is a blatant disrespect, right? This is a blatant discrepancy. This is huge. This is a, this is huge. And it goes on. And there are tons of examples like that across our country. So when we see people protesting to say that their lives matter, to say, in fact, that black life matters, black lives matter, that is about fighting back against a system that has repeatedly and regularly shown us that our lives don't matter, that we are not important, that the conditions we live in are not important. And that's what we're pushing back on. So. I'm very thankful um, to be here and to talk with you all and to, you know, express my views. I'm sure there are people who disagree with me. That's fine too, but it is what it is, as our president said. Okay. Yeah, let me, let me, first, let me, let me, let me get to the two more questions here, and then we'll close this out, Sequita. Uh, okay. Um, so <laughs> just don't say the name. Don't you, say the name. <laughs> uh, 
you mentioned that you would like to see peaceful protests in, in, in Louisville. And you also mentioned the fact that there's a lot of violence in, in uh, African-American neighborhoods. So in April of 2020, the Little Urban League sponsored a panel discussion on gun violence prevention, if you remember. The panel discussion featured John Yarmouth, Mayor Greg Fisher, as well as others. It was aired on our program, Solutions to Violence, April 13th, 14th, and 15th. So you, Sadiqwa Reynolds, moderated that discussion. So do you support increased gun safety legislation and if so, um, what would that look like? Let me be clear. That was a, um, I don't know who did that program, but I was a moderator. That wasn't an Urban League. But nevertheless, I moderated it. It, it, didn't, it was not held at the Louisville Urban League. It was held someplace else. I can't even remember where we were. Atherton, at a, Atherton. School, Atherton High School. That's right. Um, of course I support, you know, gun safety. Of course I do. I mean, we've got so many homicides in, our, in, in this country. I mean, look at Sandy Hook. That still breaks my heart. I mean, look at what happened to, of course, I, I just, I think it's a reasonable thing to expect, you know, that you, you don't want to see people get killed. It's such a, and the weapons that people have now, I mean, gosh, an accident for, you know, people are accidentally killing their kids themselves. Kids are killing each other accidentally. Of course, we want gun locks and gun safety. Yes, of course. I would never have moderated the conversation if I didn't support it. What are the upcoming events sponsored by the, the Global Urban League, and when will those events occur? In the future, well, we're, we're trying to get people to go vote. We tell everybody, nonpartisan, so just go vote. And it, we get all the time, we get drivers who are driving people who have different political persuasions than maybe the driver. Those are always funny to hear about, but it's the right thing to do. We just want people to vote. Vote, vote your conscience. It's up to you. Um, to decide. We don't tell anybody how to vote. So we, we just did something yesterday. We'll do some more on Saturdays. We're going to push people to the polls every day until the polls close. We're still trying to get people to fill out their census so that we are all counted, making sure they count their children. We're doing our home ownership classes still. We've got a um, Polaroid project that we're doing with youth in our community. People can get on our website and um, and see that. They actually can get on the website and check out everything. We just did a judicial forum the other day. We co-sponsored um, with the one of the bar associations here in town. So we're doing everything we normally do. Just look at our website, lul.org, Louisville Urban League, lul.org. There is some noise out there, Sadiqwa Reynolds, and the noise is getting louder. And people are saying Sadiqa Reynolds needs to run for mayor. What's your position? Not going to happen. <laughs> I think, I, let me tell you, I, I think I would be a good mayor. I do believe that. I, I, and, and I would do the best that I could. And I do think this city does need a strong, honest leader who is going to um, be courageous, too. I think that's really important. We need some courage. We do feel very let down. That being said, and it, it is a very, I want people to understand how hard it is for me to make the decision not to run because I do love this community. And a lot of people who I care about a lot are pushing me or, you know, are asking me about it. And um, it's tough to say no, but I do need to say no. And I am saying no again. Okay. Okay. <laughs> let me ask you this. Do you need, let me ask you this. Do you need drivers to take people to the polls? 
Yeah, if you get on our website and you look up um, LUL, and then I think it's like a backslash or forward slash vote, or just look on our website, it'll direct you. And if you want to drive, yep, you can just say you want to do that, volunteer, and people go there. Um, the polls are pretty well spaced this time, so we're doing a better job at that. I think yesterday we gave some people rides, but a lot of people had transportation. We're seeing that, but certainly on election day, we'll see some of that. So drivers, phone calls, we like to do all of those things. So whatever you want to do, volunteer, please just, especially for this election, which is so important, let us know. Folks, we're out of time. Our guest today has been Sadiqa Reynolds, director of the Louisville Urban League and selected by the Courier-Journal as one of the women of the movement. Thank you, Sadiqa. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm very honored to meet you all. Thank you so much for including me. One more thing, folks, please remember to vote. Early voting started Wednesday, October 13th. You can drop off your absentee ballot at the county clerk's office at 15th and Oak Street, or vote in person now at one of the four locations in Louisville. These locations are the Kentucky Fair and Exposition Center, North Wing, the KFC Yum Center, Main and Second Street, the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage, 1701 West Muhammad Ali or the Louisville Marriott East at 1903 Embassy Square Boulevard. On November 3rd, 13 Jefferson County Public Schools will be open for personal voting. Those schools are listed online at the Jefferson County Election Center. The hours for voting in person on November 3rd are from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Please remember to vote. Our program will be repeated Tuesdays, October 20th at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays, October 21st at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website, forwardradio.org, and clicking on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Balance program that features Sardiqua Reynolds will be placed in our archives Wednesday, October 21st. To listen via our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org, scroll down to the program archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features Sadiqua Reynolds. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. You may respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting us at solutionsofviolence18 at, gmail, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson, your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Technical assistance has been provided by Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thank you for listening.